like what is that noise is it is it in my head i don't think so i think i can hear it as well i mean i think it might be in my head because it is uh i don't know my head is pounding at a really really heavy night i am never drinking palinka again i don't remember what happened in the last 12 hours um and then i'd like to know what happened in the last 12 hours because it seems that we are trapped inside a metal container on a ship oh my gosh well this is definitely not the best situation to be in, but we are professionals and we have a podcast to make. The Urban Arena podcast about sustainable and just cities. Being trapped inside a container should not stop us. Yeah, you're right. And now that you mentioned the podcast, I'm starting to remember the beginning of the evening and what went wrong. I mean, the, the container um, story started because I went to meet Elizabeth Schober. You mean Elizabeth Schober, the associate professor at the Department of Social Anthropology from the University of Oslo? The very one. You've heard of her too. We met because um, I we went for a tour around Rotterdam Harbour. I wanted to speak to her because I wanted to understand how global maritime trade constrains or enables our quest for sustainable and just cities. And after I finished speaking to her, then I had a couple of overpriced pints of Dutch lager. And then, yeah, after that, I have no idea. Well, I don't like the overpriced, but but at least the lager was good Dutch beer. No, it was Heineken. Ooh, well, <laughs> look, we still have a recorder in your bag and we can listen and then see what happened. Actually, you know what? My, my memory is slowly coming back to me. I mean, while speaking to Elizabeth, the announcements on the ships were like really annoying. They kept coming over and over again, like the tour guide announcements. Now you're looking at this, now you're looking at that. And it came in every single language, first in Dutch, then in English, then in German, then in French. It was mad. You know what? Enough of me explaining it to you. Listen to this. So, Ellie, welcome to the Urban Arenas podcast. Um, maybe just for those people who can't see the wonderful things we can see, can you tell us where we are and what we're doing? Right. So, we're in the center of Rotterdam on the Speedo uh, tour boat that will take us out into the... <laughs> <laughs> she will talk a lot over us, I can already tell. Uh, in the port of Rotterdam. <laughs> oh God. All right, so we're puttering along the port. <laughs> yes, so we're puttering along Rotterdam. At the moment, we'll be heading out to the various uh, container ports in a bit. And so Rotterdam, famous, sort of famous old port city, and uh, you're someone who researches ports or maritime, maritime anthropology. Um, I'm wondering, like, the link between ports and cities and thinking about, okay, Rotterdam's a famous old port, but I'm wondering how, how much now are ports part of cities? I mean, are, are we seeing the end of port cities and such where ports are central to city life? Yes, essentially there's been a huge transformation that uh, is also connected to containerization, which we can talk about in a bit. Uh, basically, cities have uh, increasingly become delinked from the ports that used to be uh, much more central inside the city. Uh, so, of course, you still have, for instance, um, recreational harbor facilities in quite a lot of places where people can have their own uh, private boats anchored. And then, you know, so there's a lot of maritime action left in cities, but it's usually not related to cargo, basically the larger uh, shipping of, of uh, the commodities that we need in our daily lives. 
so all of these things usually happen at uh, ports that are further outside of the city increasingly. There's a few exceptions in the world, um, Hamburg for instance, and then also Singapore. But here in Rotterdam, as you will see, it will take us quite a while to drive out of the city. Uh, most of the uh, cargo action happens is actually outside of the city by now. Very few of the people working on board of the container vessels that we'll see in a bit will actually even make it into the city uh, because they're usually stuck inside of the port uh, because they would be primarily from Southeast Asia. So especially Filipino sailors are very popular. So and uh, they wouldn't necessarily get their papers in time to even leave the the port. So basically, you know, they would just be stuck inside the port, maybe in a, a little room with a few computers, and sort of uh, pass the time there if they get off their ship. And so it's a very different experience from what it used to be uh, pre-container. It's sort of boring, boring in a way, if you think about it, you, these amazing port cities that we think of, we think of them being so exciting because the areas around the port were places of vice and danger because they, you know, or whatever, this was romanticized because you had people from all over the world mixing in ports. But now you're saying because of container ship, basically sailors are kept inside a port, which is separate from the actual life of a city. Mm, and because, uh, you know, the ships have grown so large and uh, are transporting so many of these containers that you see everywhere here uh, in essence you need more and more space so that's why also it's been pushing out of the city increasingly uh, in places like Rotterdam but in obviously a lot of other places as well that you see this disconnection between port and city uh, so yeah basically people who work on these cargo vessels are usually trapped inside of these ports that are uh, very far away from the city by now so they don't really affect city life in the way that they used to be so what's surprising to me when I'm, when I'm looking at the dry docks that we just passed and also here at these containers, and I'm sure maybe this isn't even such a large amount, but just the enormity of everything, you know, just so much of everything. It's just mind-blowing because you don't have any idea of that from being in the city of Rotterdam itself. Um, is Europe still like a leading player in sort of maritime trade or where is you know what's the, what are the sort of the global trends in in container ship movement and, and so on so basically um that's the main uh premise for this project called ports that i'm uh going to lead ne from next year onwards is also to look at how the center of gravity is moving eastwards uh so away from uh, europe and uh, north america into Asia. So this is uh, what you're seeing here is the 14th largest port in the world. It's the largest in Europe, but again, it's sort of, uh, I mean, you can really be in all of the dimensions that you see laid out in front of you. But once you're actually in Asia, this is uh, still very small by comparison. So this the largest uh, ports in the world are now in China, in Singapore, South Korea. Uh, and in Europe, we basically have Rotterdam as the major player, and then you've got a few smaller, in quotation marks, uh, ports like Hamburg or Antwerp. Um, our project also involves uh, Piraeus, which is sort of an up-and-coming container port, and it's up-and-coming primarily because it was bought up by uh, the Chinese shipping company of Costco. And so within uh, the last uh, 10 years or so, they've uh, extremely expanded their movement of containers because they've become part of the uh, what the, uh, the Chinese call the Belt and Road Initiative. So basically they're large-scale infrastructure attempts to sort of uh, increase the efficiency of their own trading patterns with Europe in particular. 
so you can see with Piraeus in a sense uh, as a good example of uh, how not only Europe is being provincialized in terms of maritime trade but we're also being <laughs> literally used by China as sort of a, a bridgehead in order to smooth smooth over their own uh, trading capacity so that's quite a, a significant shift that we've seen over the last 10 20 years happening uh, in the port of Rotterdam 12 million containers are moved per year uh, and we just looked up the statistics for uh, Singapore and in Singapore it's 36.6 million per year and Singapore is the second largest in the world so you can uh, get a measure of again this being the largest port in Europe but at the same time how much the show has already moved elsewhere in terms of container movement and the center of gravity of the maritime industry thinking in environmental terms we're, we're screwed right because global trade is just is increasing a lot of it is in consumer in, in every year with in consumer goods which are for the most part not um, necess necessities of life um, yeah so I don't know like um, yeah do we if we want to actually uh, make the world uh, an environmentally sound place we have to what end shipping <laughs> <laughs> well I mean first of all there's obviously the CO2 emissions of uh, shipping which are uh, tremendous and uh, the kind of yeah the kind of fuel that's being used on board of container ships uh, but there's also the obvious you know consumer culture that is fueling this industry that is a question to to tackle in the future Willkommen an Bord Bei dieser Rundfahrt werden wir Ihnen die interessantesten Aspekte des Rotterdamer Hafens vorstellen I just read an article the other day which was actually written by a person in the industry in shipping who was complaining about how Amazon just introduced a two-hour promise to their um, consumers saying, if you order food with us, we will deliver it within two hours to your doorstep. Wow. This, is in, this is in which country? This is in the United States. Uh -huh. uh, but of course, there's the danger and the worry now that this is a phenomenon that will spread to other places like Europe, that people will expect to have their stuff delivered to their doorsteps within an extremely short time span. And so basically this uh, this industry person was saying, well, if we do this, and if this, if this is really the trend that we're going to towards, then we're probably gonna end up destroying this planet even quicker than we all anticipate because this is not sustainable. And yet at the same time, you know, and this is, um, this is clearly something that Amazon and, uh, has has done their math on that this is paying off for them, you know, and there's also clearly uh, a desire amongst consumers to have their stuff delivered to their doorstep in such a short time fashion. So, but of course, what does that mean? You know, that we assume that whatever we order is going to be coming to us in such a short time span. I mean, we are massively overlooking the ecological footprint of 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 these practices. Bienvenue à bord. Au cours de cette excursion, nous allons vous informer à propos des aspects les plus intéressants du port de Rotterdam. You know, we've talked a lot during the workshop about uh, organic farming, urban gardening, uh, where does your food come from? But I think the question of the supply chain is often uh, left behind. I was part of a working group where we actually talked supply chains as well. So that was quite interesting and sort of exchanging ideas uh, and uh, exchanging some names of projects that are uh, dealing with these questions. Uh, but it's, uh, I think the biggest challenge really is 
how do you scale up initiatives like uh, transporting organic food with uh, sail ships? There's, there's a lot of um, well, a handful of new projects that sort of try to have organic uh, produce delivered not via container ships but via sort of older ways of transporting goods like um, yeah sail ships but th but the issue is really uh, of course how do you scale this up to actually feed entire cities you know entire populations not just um, a few uh, wealthy consumers who are willing to also pay for the price tag of uh, having their things arrive at their doorstep in more environmentally conscious ways. Yes, from the very first podcast, uh, we spoke to uh, Orshi Lasagne and she was involved in a cargo bike initiative to, um, where they were linking up organic farms with um, um, or lo locally, yeah, organic farms or urban gardens or when we're basically delivering of, of food boxes to people. But that's people riding cargo bikes and it's very, very small scale. And I asked her, do you want to scale up? And she said, no, we can be copied. Like, but like, there's no way of scaling up. So I'm wondering about this question. And when we're thinking about needing to scale up, and uh, we have like, we can see lots of very interesting initiatives that are trying to tackle, um, yeah, you know, or trying to be outside, as I say, the mainstream economy and do something on the edge. I'm not 100% sure whether they always are outside the economy. Maybe they'd like to believe so, but certainly, or at least at the edge of, um, yeah, the mainstream economy. But then the question is like, how, or is there anything, or is there any talk about trying to green? Um, um, you know, maritime trade, or is it simply just not a question that ever comes up? Um, well, for instance, I was at the Nua Shipping uh, sort of trade maritime trade conference in the uh, last year, and there was a lot of discussions there happening around CO2 emissions. So this is an issue that's very much on the agenda at the moment amongst the big players as well, because the IMO, the International Maritime Association, they're very much pushing also for. A reduction of the CO2 emissions of the entire industry. So I think the goal is to, by 2050, to half the CO2 emissions. And they're using 2008 as their, um, you know, 100% sort of level. So of course, which uh, in itself is a bit of a problem because in the meantime, you know, <laughs> the output has has gone up since 2008. But even that is uh, for for many industry players. Uh, seems to be a, a very difficult goal to achieve um, because which a lot of it has to do with sort of um, technology and the problem of how do you move away from the crude oil based engines that are currently in use because of course that's um, first of all the technology needs to be in place but then also the, uh, the willingness to invest in new greener vessels which you know, will be a huge investment for, for the biggest players. And then there's, of course, also the question of the mid-sized and smaller um, shipping companies. What will they do if they can't, you know, if it's between investing in greener solutions or going out of business, they will continue, of course, uh, with what's currently working for them. So, so this is really a, a very uh, big and difficult industry to bring on board when it comes to more sustainable solutions. Um, I've read somewhere, I think they have the same um, CO2 emissions uh, as all of Germany has. Uh, and I mean, just the port itself here of Rotterdam actually has um, between 10 and 20 percent of the electricity use of all of the Netherlands is actually used just here in the port area. I mean, you cannot forget about the big players if you want to make a significant change 
you know, I mean, grassroots initiatives are extremely important, but if you don't tackle the fact that, you know, 90% of everything that we consume actually comes to us via ships. And, you know, that's that's a, a fact that you can't walk away from. So we have to start looking at the supply chains and at logistics and at how things are actually coming to our doorstep. The, the chain of, you know, transportation involved in getting your cell phone, in getting this microphone and getting this vase you know the flowers most of these things the chairs the tables these things will all be transported one way or another via ship at some segment of of the chain so if we don't look at the environmental impact that that particular way of transportation has you know there's no point to what we're doing in some ways you know in 1930 is the last phase afgerond. With an oppervlakte of 310 hectare, is this the grootste gegraven? Okay, Alice, so we just got off uh, the boat. Did you have a nice tour? Oh, you know, I always love to be on the water, so yeah. <laughs> it's lovely. It's a little bit too short, and uh, we got um, interrupted a lot by four languages worth of um, tour guide announcements. Jeez. But yeah, so now, now, we're, now we're back on dry land, walking along the dock. Um, in Rotterdam. What what can you imagine in Europe specifically I'm talking now? I know more of your research is based in Asia, but what can you imagine like the future of ports in, in Europe? Do you think there's gonna be like a, a centralization, so fewer and fewer ports, so it's gonna have mega ports, or is it gonna be more a decentralization and, and yeah, so what's 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 your predictions for the future? Uh, well, I think decentralization is probably not the way forward given the way the industry works at the moment, but who knows? I mean, that's the beauty of the future. We just don't know. <laughs> but I think I, I think what we will see if the contemporary constellation of capitalism is any prediction, we will probably see more of sort of China grabbing ports like they did in Piraeus uh, and turning European ports into spaces where they have their own terminals or even own the port in order to transport their goods more smoothly. So that will be interesting. They've been making quite a few inroads into Italy in addition to Greece recently, which of course, I mean, it changes also the political dynamics, you know, what is the role of China vis-a-vis -vis these governments where they come and bring uh, huge investments into uh, these spaces which might have been not necessarily abandoned but often quite neglected so they've recently also there's been a lot of discussions around Trieste sort of the, the port of Trieste has been uh, it was a huge port uh, during the Habsburg Empire but in the meantime it has been very much outcompeted by other ports in the Mediterranean area but in recent years again sort of, there's been quite a bit of interest by the Chinese to have things up and running again and uh, so I think there's there's a lot to watch there in terms of East Asian investment in European ports and what will happen there. And are these private companies or are these state-backed companies or state-owned well, companies? Costco is sort of the, the Chinese, that's a state company basically, uh, state shipping, yeah. Maybe lots of people have made this observation, but it, just because I'm not so familiar with the topic, it came to mind now. But it does seem like an interesting historical uh, um, mirroring, you know, when you have companies like the East India Company going and like building ports, um, you know, in Asia. And now you have Asian um, companies coming and, and building ports in Europe. 
I think that let's let's just go back to Piraeus the example because I think that's Piraeus is good uh, to think with in that regard because it uh, it opens up a lot of questions around sovereignty locally that maybe the Greek state doesn't necessarily want to address but I think when you follow a bit also in terms of the mobilization of workers who were very much opposed to this uh, privatization and you know you can see that there's also some concerns over the nation state uh, that play into it and then of course you have groups like the Golden Dawn coming into the area of Piraeus and mobilizing people around the port on the basis of we've just been sold out to the Chinese and it's a very uncomfortable thing to discuss but I think the the politics around ports and the issue of sovereignty uh, you know when it comes to global capitalism is is really interesting I mean Rotterdam too is sort of I mean there's a lot of this is the heartland of some far-right politics as much as you know when you look at another research site that I'm interested in currently is Malmö uh, where you had, uh, which was dominated by uh, a big shipyard, uh, which moved out of the area f- more or less in the late 1990s, 2000s, moved also they moved their infrastructure, sold it to East Asia. The 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 big crane that was sort of overlooking Malmo was sold off to um, a Korean company. And of course, this is also again Malmo is, is you know a city that's rapidly deindustrializing. But at the same time, when you look at Malmo and its hinterlands, it's very much the the core of the far right of Sweden. And so, I mean, there is there are some political tendencies that you also have to look at when you look at uh, maritime industries and the way that they're moving eastwards. You know. <laughs> interesting and um, I guess like so my, my final question which I tried to ask you in the book two or three times but it failed yep, yep, yep. is like what is what is an anthropologist uh, for those people who don't maybe understand what contemporary anthropology means like what's an anthropologist doing looking at all this yes um, as I think I also tried to explain on the boat <laughs> there's been a lot of attempts by human geographers by sociologists and historians to work with the topic of know maritime trade of shipping of logistics recently and increasingly I mean there's been some fantastic literature produced um, in those realms but I do think that anthropologists can bring a lot to the table because we do go to places ideally for a longer time and we spend more time talking to people on the ground and sort of experiencing uh, ports, cities, and also you know other uh, ancillary uh, industries related to to the maritime world, like ships, uh, shipbuilding, sort of you know the entire uh, chain around maritime industries. So we're trying to approach um, these aspects via an ethnographic method of you know talking to people, being there, being close to the ground exploring the stories behind the industry talking to people rather than just looking at big data great well we look forward to reading all the results of that in two or three years time <laughs> five, <but yeah. laughs> four or five years time i hope you enjoyed uh, your tour today uh, <laughs> i hope i've been a i've been a i've been a pleasant and clement uh, um, um participant on your um tour <laughs> okay thank you so much ellie for coming on the podcast yeah Thank you, too.
Well, Kate, we are still uh, trapped inside this container, and I hope uh, one day we'll uh, be able to get out of it. Hopefully. Hopefully, but it doesn't mean uh, we'll be bored. I mean, even though it's pitch black and all we have for entertainment is the interview um, I made with Ellie, because we can talk about that very interview. Yeah, did you like it? What was interesting? Yes, and this is such an interesting topic. It's something that we don't really talk about that often. I mean, it's easy to think about sustainability when you're trying to use a reusable straw or look at the cutlery you're using when you're going out to eat. But something like shipping is very distant from kind of our day-to-day way of thinking, but so important and really touches everything that we consume. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about it exactly then? Like, I mean, what were the things in it that you think we should uh, yeah, think about a little bit more, both me and you and maybe with the people at home as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean one of the biggest questions is what can we do um, within the midst of this crisis? Again, it's, this, is, this is a very difficult thing to escape. You can't necessarily just say, I'm not going to consume anything that has ever been shipped ever because that's just not a sustainable way to live. And so, you know, a big question is, what can we done about this big environmental catastrophe? I mean, I was looking at the, at the statistics and, you know, right now, ships generate around 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions per year. And the EU estimates that it'll be around one-fifth of global emissions by 2050. So if we don't do anything now, um, this is going to be a serious problem. Elizabeth did talk about kind of, you know, companies' roles in this, and, and especially Amazon with its new two-hour shipping um, policy in the U.S. There are two opinions or two two comments to be made. You know, A, Amazon does have a responsibility. It's one of the biggest players in this industry. And Jeff Bezos just recently decided to give $10 billion to fight climate change. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. how can that solve the environmental catastrophe that is that's Amazon's creating? So there's that side. There's also the side of businesses are going to do what consumers demand. And so if it's not Amazon, it's just going to be another firm that takes advantage of this of this demand from society. Mm-hmm, so is mm-hmm. this really companies doing? Is this is this really where companies should be the faulty one? I mean, they, yeah, and well, it's of course probably both of us, uh, both customers and the uh, companies. But I guess what companies do is they uh, instill in us a certain a certain expectation that things can be done in a certain way. So if, you know, the idea of getting something within two hours after you order it to your house, if that's now what's going to be pushed in America um, by Amazon, then people will get used to it and people will expect it. So the same way that maybe like five years ago, even or 10 years ago, people just didn't expect to be able to just order something online and have it the next day. You know, but then now we've we've we 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 have come to expect this. So so they've actually they've actually encultured a certain um yeah, a certain um demand on the side of the customer to have this instant instantaneous, almost instantaneous um product arrive to their door. Uh where we never would have thought if you'd asked people twenty years ago, thirty years ago, would is this so important? People would have been like, Probably not, you know? Like is it is it such a big thing to have to wait for the weekend to go to the shop to buy your clothes or your music? But now it's like we we, we want it instantly and that desire to want it instantly has to have been created from somewhere and I think that the companies like Amazon and others have played a big part in shaping the contours of our desire I mean I'm not sure it's a thing that we really would have wanted so much anyway I don't know I can't wait you know in 10 years we'll have drones giving us things yeah. within within yeah. <laughs> 30 minutes of when we order really? so like you, I mean like like yeah. the same way the same way that we order food we'll expect um, other things just to arrive we click on the drone and drops it in our you know, in our backyard or whatever. Mad. I just still, I'm not sure that that demand or that that 
you know, that idea is just coming from companies. I mean, companies are made up of humans. Humans think of this. They want this. And so it's, it's, I think it's really the individual who's like thinking of kind of that type of future and demands it. And then companies are just serving a need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I'm. Gonna, we're going to disagree on that because I, <laughs> I think I know. I mean, I just think I just think if we, I, I think if you place too much stuff always on on consumers all the time, then it creates a lot of um, shame or whatever in people, like environmental shame that we have when we do things that are not you know environmentally sustainable or just. But um, these things are only enabled or constrained by the 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 structures of the company you know or their delivery mechanisms or whatever that's you know with, without those we wouldn't be able to want it you no, know absolutely so, absolutely yeah. and, yeah. and and you know if, if Amazon makes one step in the right direction that's a huge huge difference that the world sees compared to you and I deciding to do a certain thing and and seeing what kind of environmental impact that will have mm-hmm, absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely um, another thing I thought was very interesting that Elizabeth mentioned was. It, kind of this imperialist attitude towards ports. I think I, I find it very interesting that ports have this political power over mm-hmm. certain countries. So when a country comes in, mm-hmm. like China, buys a port in Greece, then there's tremendous political influence associated with that. Is that comparable to kind of the the way any type of investment comes into a country, as in any type of country can come in, buy a company in another country, and then have economic influence, but obviously also political influence. Is the port issue a bigger imperialist concern? That's my question. Yes, yes, actually, um, because I think it's like a key infrastructure. And maybe this is why, because like this with airports or, or seaports, um, it's, it's actually quite interesting that, that you would allow a port to be run by a foreign entity because this is what's coming in and out of your country. Okay, you might be then controlling in some way the the customs or, or the or the borders that go with it, but 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 this sort of key infrastructure that controls entry and exit into a into a country gives gives those uh, gives those companies a lot of power. I mean, in the colonial period, the East India Company from from the UK they, they understood that very clearly. You know, like this is why this is when okay um, there was no of course. Um, flights at the time, but like the seaports were so important for British colonialism in India because they basically controlled the 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 economic and also the infrastructure, and then so the economic um, capabilities, if you like, or the of 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 India or the subcontinent at the time, and uh, and also this key infrastructure that they also then were were developing. Which when once you start to develop infrastructure, you develop it for your own interests as well, and so not for the interests of the country, but for the interests of of your company, and that and then that allowed in the in the long run the UK or, or Britain rather to to uh, to take over um, large large parts of the subcontinent. Although, and, I mean, there's, there's economic power that comes. And then, I mean, imagine a port that's, you know, a port in Greece that's not doing very well. If they didn't get that outside investment, maybe they'd be losing economic, you know, power for the individual. And so that's a concern in itself. So is it better than, you know, no investment coming in? Oh, for sure. I mean, but you're asking, like, if, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but, I, but I'm just saying, like, you ask, like, what's the motivation behind the, behind the you know, state-owned companies doing these things? Two things, right? One, of course, is to make money. But another is, of course, to uh, to have control and to exercise to exercise control. I mean, China is doing massive infrastructure projects in, in Africa, but then also in the Balkans, because they want to have... Uh, um, political power, and uh, I mean that's as this is. Uh, I think it's, it's it's pretty clear. This is their this is their logic. If somebody is listening from the Chinese state, 
Um, <laughs> how can they? How can they write to us and tell us that it's just that, that we're that we're uh, we're wrong with our worries? Yes, we would love to hear from you. You can email us through the contact form found at our website, Urbana dash arena dot eu or at urbana at ceu dot edu and you can also find us on twitter or instagram at the handle at arena underscore urban yeah and we should tell everybody who does listen and like this podcast um the place where you do listen to your this podcast please uh, rate us and review us especially if you're going to say something uh, positive uh, that's not just because we want to um, yeah feel good about ourselves we're full of self-confidence so we know we're brilliant it's so that more people can find us it's the way um, yeah the way the the way the system works is if, if things are getting lots of reviews and uh, likes then more then it appears higher up in the charts and then more people can find us so if you do like us spread the word by telling people about us but also by rating and reviewing us as well please do all right, that is it from uh, us this time. I can... Oh, the container's opening. Oh, my gosh. This podcast is part of the three-year project Urbana, Urban Arenas for Sustainable and Just Cities. It was funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme.